News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Some people just have the most fascinating jobs, and I'm so curious as to how they got into these fields and the type of work that they do. For instance, how do you create and work at a company where you're studying the challenges of human reproduction in space, as in what are the impacts of gravity on early embryo development. See what I mean? It's fascinating, right? Well, this is what our next guest works on, actually. It's Dr. Egbert Edelbrook, who is the CEO of Spaceborne United BV and joins us now. Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to share, um, to share what we're doing and why. Yeah, how, are, how did you get into this? Why are you studying this? Yeah, well, it's actually a mix of uh, my role as a donor for an IVF clinic. So I am a sperm donor, at least I have been. And, and in that role, I learned a lot about this, this assisted reproductive technologies. And it combined with my passion for space and space exploration. And I was aware of the, the challenges um, humanity faces when uh, we are trying to become a multi-planetary species. So that includes addressing the challenge of being able to reproduce in space. And I was wondering if this, this uh, IVF technology could be re-engineered to address this challenge. And it, it turns out it, it is very helpful. And that's where it, where it started, basically. Well, wait, Dr. Arderbrook, are you saying nobody else was studying this yet? Um, well, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's uh, recognized by, by the space agencies like NASA and ESA and, and the others that this is a crucial um, uh, challenge to address because uh, otherwise it would be uh, pretty much pointless to, to spend all those billions of dollars on, on preparing humanity to, for example, uh, uh, prepare them for, for human settlements on Mars. And those settlements, they want them to be independent from Earth eventually. Uh, but it's very difficult for those agencies to address this, this ethically complex challenge because they have to work with taxpayer money. And it's, it's not easy to, to spend uh, that money on ethically sensitive and complex topics. So they are open about this, and, and they support uh, research and biotech companies like us to, to address this. Okay, so what is it that you are looking at? Are you looking at the possibility of like how uh, a baby would essentially grow in gravity, like without gravity? Yeah, well, uh, most people think when, when, when we're talking about space that, that it's all microgravity. I mean, uh, we, we know all the, the images of the International Space Station and floating astronauts. And of course, they are experiencing zero gravity, microgravity. But uh, that very low level of gravity would be very unhealthy for, for developing babies. So we are uh, providing artificial gravity. We, we have a device that with a rotating disc and inside the disc there are the embryos and by rotating the disc they experience a, a certain level of gravity and by, by adjusting this, this rotation speed, for example, to the gravity level uh, on Mars, we can study safely close to Earth if embryos can develop healthy in, in a lower gravity environment. Okay, and so where would this come in handy? How soon would we need to use something like this perhaps? Yeah, so, um, I mean, uh, uh, reproduction is, is, is not, not just one event. It consists of, of, of the, the, those different stages. 
we are now just only focusing on this very first stage, the conception stage and the, the early days of embryo development. And uh, this, there's a long road to go before we, we, we can complete all the pieces of the puzzle of the full nine-month reproductive cycle. So we're just focusing on the very first days, and, and it could become uh, really relevant in, in, in two or three decades when there's uh, settlements expected uh, on Mars and, and they need to, to learn, okay, what, what countermeasures do we perhaps need if the, the gravity level is just not really enough for healthy embryo development. Okay, and so where are you at with the research right now? Yeah, so we are, for the last uh, five to six years, we've been focusing on um, uh, developing uh, a research platform, so to speak, an, an uh, IVF incubator. It's basically re-engineered existing IVF technology, and uh, you can look at it as, as like a mini-lab uh, and also a research platform in which uh, sperm cells and, and female cells will be combined to, to uh, create embryos and develop for a few days in this artificial gravity environment. So this device, this mini-lab, uh, we, we have our very first prototype. It was actually supposed to, to be on a rocket into space uh, last month in August, but there, was a, there were issues with our launch partner and their launch license, so there is a little bit of delay that happens a lot in the space sector. That's not a problem. So we have our very first prototype uh, uh, ready to be, to be tested. And, of course, we, we cannot uh, quickly use uh, human uh, cells that would be ethically uh, unacceptable and medically unacceptable, of course. So our first test missions will be with, with, uh, with mice uh, cells and mice embryos. And so which space agency are you working with, or is this available to any country? Um, it can be available to, to any country. We, uh, it, it's difficult uh, because what I explained about the, the sensitivity of the topic, it's very difficult for agencies to, to, uh, to be involved too much. So mm -hmm. they, um, I mean, they help with, with ground-based testing in, in, in centrifuges and, and, and simulated artificial gravity uh, devices, uh, but that's, that's quite technical. So uh, we are... We are um, uh, open to, to different launch partners around the globe. Um, of course, we are looking into the, the, the legislation that is different in different regions. It's a very sensitive topic, and for good reasons, there are all these ethical committees that make sure that we uh, work by the book and we, uh, we uh, examine embryos in the right way and we don't expose uh, embryos to unnecessary risks because the space environment is, of course, uh, really different from Earth. There's much more radiation. If we change the gravity level, uh, we still need to figure out what what the effects are on the embryos. Um, but but in terms of location, we uh, we work with, with different launch partners uh, uh, in different regions. Well, what is it that fascinates you about this? Because you you've been studying this for a long time. You clearly are are interested in this. Yes, of course. So I, I've always been fascinated by the idea that. Um, humanity would, would basically transcend the, the, the cradle that, that Earth can be seen as, and, and, and uh, humanity can become a multiplanetary species, and, and that will have so many benefits for, for humanity on Earth, as well as uh, expanding the human comfort zone, basically, to, to other planets as well, and other areas in space where, where we can live. And there's one more um, goal that we, that we contribute to, 
the, the, the IVF research that we do in space also strongly contributes to um, uh, opportunities of improving IVF treatment on Earth. So there's a lot of women, that's an international trend, that they prefer to start with having a family a few years later because they want to focus on their careers first. And we're very happy that we can contribute to enabling this as well because the biology, of course, is not really helpful when you're a little bit, when you're a few years older. Um, but because of IVF opportunities and other assisted reproductive technologies, this becomes uh, possible for all these women that, that want to have uh, a career. Hmm, so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it's a pleasure. That's Dr. Egbert Edelbrook, who's the CEO of Spaceborn United BV, doing some really fascinating work on how to make sure that humans can like conceive and reproduce even in space conditions. Think about that. You want to colonize Mars? You want to go places? You want to go see what's going on on other planets? You have to think about that kind of stuff, right? And his company is doing that work. This is Mornings with Simi. I love it. That's where you really know it's Friday, right? It's time for us to check in with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning, Rob. Good morning. You know, Simi, when you were gone, I had Taylor Swift as the music I heard. playing during the show. Yes. And then one Friday, we forgot Macho Man, oh. and it was very disconcerting. It is disconcerting, right? You become discombobulated. You're like, where mm. is Macho Man on this Friday morning? I didn't realize you were such a Taylor Swift fan. That's right. Well, yeah, I, I am. And I had a story about uh, getting my hands on some tickets to her show in Toronto. What? I, I did not take them um, because I couldn't find anyone to go who was willing to go to Toronto uh, with me for this. And I what? And I decided not to become a ticket scalper and take the tickets and then resell them. So I did not. Anyways, there's a whole long thing Jill and I talked about and I punished myself for a week with Taylor Swift music uh, every morning. But the point <laughs> being, Macho Man is a great way to get Friday going. I cannot believe... You're the man... You now will become the man who turned down Taylor Swift tickets. I don't know if you can... I don't know if you can outlive that, Rob. That's I'll a add one. it to the, the long <laughs> list of descriptions of a man who draws pictures of cats for BC politics. All the other descriptions. If I see any cat picture on social media, I'm like, oh, did Rob put that there? Because that usually is something that you have posted there. That's good. That's you, good. That's my brand. Love the cat. Brand that is, is your working. brand. That is your brand. Mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about politics this morning. Now, I saw what you were saying yesterday on social media about this this BC Green Party decision. I have to admit, I'm puzzled by this too. What is going on here? Yeah, this is a head scratcher. So the deputy leader of the BC Greens is Dr. Sanjeev Gandhi, who is the former head of pediatric cardiovascular uh, surgery at BC Children's Hospital. He's a child heart surgeon. And he joined the Greens in January as their deputy leader, and he has become a big face of the party. They want to use him to push the party out of the climate change, environmental kind of uh, thought that most people have of the BC Greens and into health and wellness. So he's showed up at all these events. He's developed this profile. And then they announced yesterday that he will run in the 2024 BC election, which is good for the Greens. And he has chosen the riding of Vancouver Kingsway, uh, also known as the home of Health Minister Adrian Dix, who, by the way, <laughs> has such an iron grip of this riding that uh, he proceeded to bring in, you know, more than uh, I think it was sixty-seven percent of the vote in the la last election. He has won that riding five times in a row each time 
bringing in a higher vote. And there is almost no chance that um, Dr. Gandhi can win this riding. Uh, He didn't mention in his press conference once the idea of winning it. I don't think the Greens believe he can win it. I don't think he even wants to win it. What, what, he just what wants is to going run on here, Rob? He he just wants to run against the health minister and inflict as much damage as possible on the health minister. Does that make sense? As to he you? can. Does that make sense? No, though? I, like if you're well, the deputy <clears throat> leader of a party that needs more than a couple of seats in the legislature, why would mm-hmm. you sacrifice your high profile deputy leader like this? It sounds like this is what he wanted to do. And what was interesting about the press conference yesterday is we're we're sitting there listening to it. And he starts off by saying, you know, my decision to run here is not about a single individual. And then he goes on to talk about how the health system has been horribly mismanaged. And he he wants a chance to debate that during the election. And then someone says, well, could you not have run it a in a different riding and have a chance of actually winning and becoming an MLA and effecting change. And he says, quote, this isn't about political calculus. And then he talks about how the riding has many, you know, a high immigrant uh, population, a non-Caucasian population, and he he's operated on people whose families are there. And we're all just sort of sitting there going, yeah, uh, okay. okay, like get to the, get to the real reason. And later on, he finally says, you know, well, okay, if, I am choosing to run here because it's the Minister of Health, and I want to talk about healthcare, the whole debate. And Elizabeth May, the federal leader, jumps in and, and says, yeah, you know, uh, Adrian Dix is the architect of the disaster that we're facing right now, and we got to take him on. And then he says, our intention is to finish the job. Adrian Dix can't even start. So you're listening to this press conference, and it's like, it's not about any one person. It's not a political calculation, except it is of in both is. cases. And this is kind of an attempt, I guess, by Dr. Gandhi to to take on the health minister and get all of the things he wants to say about the healthcare system. He's been an outspoken uh, critic of the system. It's one of the reasons he left BC Children's Hospital is uh, he was getting in a conflict with the administration over speaking out about COVID and how he thinks Dr. Bonnie Henry should be fired. He thinks that she doesn't understand uh-huh. science and medicine. He thinks Dick should be fired, uh, on and on. So he's, he's got a chance in his mind to run essentially a grudge campaign um, for the next year against Adrian Dix with no hope um, that he's going to win. And I, I guess I guess it brings up a couple things about the Greens. One, I mean, this is not a way to run an election campaign. <laughs> no, it's not. And That's so what I'm, I was thinking kinda, too. I was like, what is I'm this? Kinda, where are the political strategists in the Greens, I guess, and what is their plan for the next election? Because th- this isn't good. Um, and, and also, I guess the the leader, Sonia First Snow, can't, can't really control the deputy leader um, because this isn't in the best interest of the party in a way. It's a, um, a person not caring if they win uh, or benefit the party, just trying to exact as much damage against someone that he has a grudge against. I, I, you know... It, and that's, Fine, what it guess, comes but, across, but that's what it comes across as, right? Like they can sit there and say it's not a political thing. The only reason people were even paying attention to what they were saying yesterday is because of politics, is because they sure. are in a political party. And the only reason people are paying attention is because they have MLAs who were voted to the legislature. And if you don't yeah. have that, then people pay a whole lot less attention. So I don't understand their end game here. No, and I, you know the Greens often like to talk about how the things that they do aren't political calculations, and they look down dismissively at the very act of politics—that it is um, something sort of beneath them—and they don't they don't 
don't think about politics when they make decisions. They only think about the truth and science um, and that okay. and that type of thing. And you and you pick that up again. But this whole thing is just a, a machination of politics all over the place. And I guess the larger questions for the Greens are. I mean, uh, if you're going to take your star candidate and burn him off this way, do you have any other hope in any other Vancouver ridings? Uh, I'm not sure uh, the Greens think they do. There is a West Vancouver Sea to Sky riding that they only lost by 60 votes. Uh, Jordan Sturdy is the incumbent there. The same Green candidate is running there. That's a riding that's in play. Mm. But the Greens really need more seats to to prove that they're kind of growing as a party and this feels like an opportunity that was a little bit missed because one person's uh political ambitions only extend as far as a single topic and a single opponent even though he's deputy leader of a larger party and yeah um, a bit of a head scratcher yesterday that no kidding uh, we're trying to figure out all right we are back talking with rob shaw political correspondent with czech news now rob also this week we talked about the whole bank of canada rate decision that was coming and we saw premiers including david eby speaking out about this now turns out the bank of canada had something to say about that yeah, Governor Tiff Macklem had his first press conference yesterday since he chose to keep the rate at 5% on Tuesday. He said he didn't feel influenced by premiers. Uh, Doug Ford also wrote a letter, uh, or even the deputy prime minister, you know, saying publicly they wanted rates to halt and not go up. Uh, he, It's interesting. He did a big freewheeling, wide-ranging press conference, taking questions from reporters. Uh, and the resulting coverage, you know, he made two points. The, the first point is that we might have to increase rates more because inflation is is really stubborn and it's at three to four percent and it's not moving down very much and he wants to get it to two percent. But then he also said he thinks that this five percent might be enough to do that over time and that the victory line is within sight. And so you're listening to all of this. Bloomberg puts out a story uh, about this with the headline that the governor says victory over inflation is in sight. Reuters puts out a story saying the Bank of Canada governor says interest rates might not be high enough. And you start to see why this is so confusing to understand where we are in interest rates, because the bank sort of says everything under the sun, depending on how you want to sift through that tea leaf. And it is hard to understand where um, they're coming from. But it is interesting to hear him talk about saying that he heard the same thing that David Eby heard. He's like, it's not that the bank doesn't hear people are in pain. And it's not that the bank doesn't hear they're stressed on their mortgage because the interest rates are up and they're stressed on their grocery bill because inflation is up. It's just that in his words, there's no pain-free way to restore price to stability. And in, in his words, the destination is worth it. And he says, in the long term, you have to have a stable economy of an, of inflation at, at 2%. Uh, to function and that people are going to get hurt along the way. And that I think that is the real takeaway is that it's not that the bank doesn't hear you struggling. It's that the struggle is what they want to hear in in a way because that's Are they, like, are they saying the, the struggle is needed? The struggle is needed because the economy has to cool, because unemployment has to be up, because, you know, uh, economic growth has to be down. Like he said, we're not trying to kill the economy, but we're trying to slow it. And we're trying to take, you know, the banks, they have these lines about people having excess deposits in their in their uh, personal lives. Like they've saved too much money during COVID and they're spending it, which for most of us is good. But for the bank, it fuels inflation, it fuels spending. Uh, and so they don't, they want you to lose 
your savings See, and they want you to they want you to be in a stressed position but that makes uh, it feel like bring... the deck is always stacked against us right that yes. no matter what we do they are going to almost like conspire against us to get ahead you're going to get a lot of calls from a lot of economic dude bros after this segment talking about you know all of the economic measures and and formulas and things that, that people use to control inflation this is how the economy works fine you know and and that certainly comes through from the bank of canada but the point from politicians that people are in trouble and communicating that to the bank in letters from David Eby and the bank saying, we know we hear the exact same thing, but you know, there is no pain-free way to do what we need to do and we have to do it. And so it's going to cause pain. Um, that is also the idea that your interest rate is coming down anytime soon. You know, the bank talked yesterday about 2025 still being the target they see for a 2% in um, inflation and that only then would they start to decrease rates and that may not even happen so who knows but um a, an interesting press conference with the governor tiff macklem yesterday and the kind of thing that everyone watches uh, and comes away with some different view of what might happen next right and then the jobs numbers came out this morning right and bc is one of only three provinces in canada that saw an increase in employment so actually gained jobs in the month of august and so then you start to wonder like what signs exactly are they looking for for canadians to get some relief yeah he did i mean he listed in his speech a whole bunch of, of different metrics but they're all sort of um, you know, we see the economy cooling a little tiny bit with GDP going down. I think it was 0.2% in the most recent, um, you know, assessment. And it's hard. That's basically zero, but it's also down. It's hard to sort of understand the weight that the bank puts on all the different indicators and how long they kind of go on for. Um, and it, it, only he and, and the governing council really sort of know and that will release their sort of discussion points uh, come out, uh, I think, in the next couple of weeks, talking about how they decided to hold the rate and that that sheds some light into it. He did mention, though, um, that government spending is one of the things that can fuel inflation and that if the rate of government spending, which is built in right now to their projections, was to increase, let's say governments decided to hand out a whole bunch of cash for to help people with affordability that can make it more difficult to get inflation back down to the target rate. So that puts politicians in a kind of jam again. Right. I don't think they care very much about the Bank of Canada's uh, worry on that. They'd rather make people happy with affordability help, but um, they may just be another part of another small part of the problem. Oh boy. All right, Rob, thank you. Okay, take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now we're going to talk about jobs. Because we are all worried about jobs these days. But the news is out this morning about what the August jobs picture looked like in Canada. And for BC, the news was actually pretty good. BC was one of only three provinces across the country to see an increase in the number of people employed. Alberta, BC, Prince Edward Island. Those were the only three. Nova Scotia saw a decline. Everyone else kind of stayed the same. So where are we seeing these increases? Well, to talk more about that, we're joined now by Deborah Brar, who is BC's Minister of State for Trade. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, Simi, for having me today. So what was the picture like for BC mm -hmm. in August? Where did we have some strength when it came to getting jobs? Yeah, Simi, it's great to see a BC economy stay strong and resilient under very difficult circumstances we have at this point in time globally. As you know, BC's uh, employment is up by 12,000 uh, compared to last month. So far this year, from January to August, BC has added 25,600 jobs, uh, 
And BC's unemployment rate right now is 5.2%, which is below the national average, 5.5%. So BC has the second lowest unemployment rate at this point in time among all provinces behind Quebec. Uh, employment is up this month uh, in all but two regions, which is uh, Thomas, Okanagan, and Kootenai. And BC's self-employment uh, is up also by 21,700, uh, third highest among all provinces. So BC uh, made good gains, uh, uh, Sarah, uh, in, uh, in transportation and warehousing, which is 11,000, education services, uh, 10,000, business building, other support services, 4,800, and so on. We also have some losses, which is the finance, insurance, real estate, uh, 77,000 down, healthcare and social assistance, uh, 57,000, uh, information, culture, and recreation, 4,600, and construction also lost a little job, 1,700. So overall, BC is doing very well as compared to, uh, as you said in your opening, uh, uh, as compared to other provinces. Uh, right in the, in the country. Are you a little concerned though? You just mentioned that construction numbers are down. Uh, transportation was up though. Are you a little concerned about some of those areas that saw job losses? Well, uh, I understand. Uh, as I said earlier, we are going through a very difficult time. The construction companies face challenges in finding workers, workers because of uh, the shortage of skilled workers and upcoming wave of retiring workers. Uh, so that that is there for sure. But BC uh, is taking steps alongside the industry uh, to help train more construction workers. Uh, as you know, Start Canada also show that BC's construction employment has gone up by 38,000 since July 2017, which is the third most among all provinces. So we continue to support people. Uh, you know, it's very Interesting to see, Sarah, that we received almost 250,000 people during the last three years, and we still have workers shortage uh, in this province. Uh, so we have programs like uh, the uh, Future Skill Grant Program that gives $3,500 to people uh, for any training program. We also have the BC Access Grant that provides financial assistance up to 4,000 to people who are low-income, middle-income, uh, who want to get into the training program. Right. So we will continue to work to support the industry. Any impact from the film and television sector and the strike? Because that's, that's a big shutdown for BC. I, I don't have a too early morning, Sarah. I don't have a specific about that industry. But uh, overall, as, as I said to you earlier, that it's great to see BC economy stay very, very strong and resilient under very difficult circumstances. We have gained uh, 12,000 jobs as compared to last month. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Sarah, for having me once again. That is Jagrup Brar, BC's Minister of State for Trade, talking about the jobs picture here in BC this for the last month in August. Uh, the good news for BC was that we were one of only three provinces that saw an increase in the number of people employed, BC, Alberta, Prince Edward Island. But when you say that, you know, jobs being lost in real estate, construction, I don't know, it feels to me that's something we should be putting on the radar in the months ahead, especially uh, when you look at how uncertain, I would say, things are right now in the real estate market, for sure. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We talk a lot about the increase in crime these days, don't we? I mean, shoplifting, theft, assault. What about car thefts? Reports of stolen cars have actually increased dramatically. They've nearly doubled in Ontario and Quebec. They're up by a third in Alberta. And what is it, by the way, that thieves want to steal? 
Well, the Honda CRV is now the most commonly stolen vehicle in the country. So what has led to this? Why is car theft such a problem in Canada? Well, joining us now is Michael Rota, who's the president and CEO of the Canadian Finance and Leasing Association. Michael, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. How are you seeing this as a problem? Like how much of a situation is this? Well, I think you you pretty much hit the nail on the head uh, in your introduction. Um, we've seen a precipitous incline uh, in the sort of the, the graph that shows the, the rate of uh, auto theft in the last, uh, let's say, just over five years in the GTA uh, area, so Toronto area, 300% increase in the, the rate of auto theft. And we're also starting to see the, the violent instances of, of carjacking increasing. Okay, that is a lot. But what, where are these cars all going? What's happening? So it depends on the type of vehicles, but uh, most are going to Eastern Europe and Asia and uh, Africa. That's, that sort of this seems to be the, uh, the prime destinations. Is this organized? Absolutely. So something on this magnitude, uh, just by necessity, has to be. Um, you know, you have to, you know, they, they get low level criminals to do the actual uh, stealing. But then the organized crime takes over, containers the vehicles and has them sent out of the country. Okay, and is there something, Michael, that has changed along the way from, you know, used to be that car thefts were primarily uh, like opportunity, right? If they had the opportunity and nobody was around, they would take that car. Is there something different happening today? So it's, it's uh, you know, enforcement is, uh, sorry, um, prevention is always important. And, uh, you know, we, we always advise consumers not to leave their cars running and unattended, it, you know, and that's, you know, people do still do that. Uh, they what? They still do that? Oh, yeah, it goes, particularly now with uh, the instances of sort of Uber deliveries or, or package deliveries. So you'll see a lot of people, oh. they're, they're not professional delivery companies, but they'll get into that business, quickly just run up the street, you know, up the stairs or go into the apartment to deliver the package. Uh, it's, it's easier to leave the vehicle running, come out and, uh, you know, it's not so easy because the vehicle is gone. So we do see that that as an uh, increasing incidence. But I think overall, what the, the issue is, is in a way, uh, we have become victims of our own success. In the early 2000s, we had a high rate of auto theft in the country, and it precipitously came down because there was a lot of attention paid to it. Uh, manufacturers made it more difficult to steal the vehicles. Police had dedicated provincial auto theft teams, and we saw a steep decline in the number of, of uh, auto thefts into the mid-2000s. And then it started to come back again. And that's partly because we took the, our, you know, our eye off the ball. We, we thought, okay, problem solved and, and moved on. And uh, many, in fact, all of the provincial auto theft teams were disbanded. And so what it's done is it's created a, you know, a low-risk environment, but a high-opportunity environment. Because the other side of that is demand issues. And as we know, there's constraints in supply chains. That's not just a Canadian issue. It's a global one. And so with Canada being you know, a uh, high-reward, low-risk environment, the criminals operate from here. And we've actually been um, recognized as a global supplier of stolen vehicles. I, I'm wondering with all the technology advances, and you mentioned this too, right? Like automakers recognize this was an issue. How are cars being stolen these days? So the very same technology that initially made it difficult to steal, uh, that's now uh, pretty readily circumvented. Um, the, the downside of you know a manufacturer uh, auto theft deterrent is it's got to be standardized. So it's the same for all the vehicles that they sell. So if you you know you crack the code for one, you've cracked it for, for all of them. So now the criminals actually could, they literally can steal the vehicles in seconds. They use different types of attacks. They can break into the, uh, the, uh, the software from the car. They can do something called a relay attack where they intercept the signal from the, the, the key fob to the car. And it allows them to quickly steal the vehicle. There are trackers on many of the vehicles. And so what they'll do is they'll leave the vehicle somewhere, you know, on a street somewhere for a couple of days just to kind of keep an eye on it. And 
make sure that the ghost is clear and then and or that they get that vehicle on a container and out of the country once it's once it's at the port it's you know it's effectively gone because it's uh, such a high volume at these ports and the the ability to, to check every container is just not really feasible and so you know they'll either falsify the documentation or they'll, they'll fudge it a little bit and the, and the containers are gone and, and out of our jurisdiction though I will say police and insurance investigators do from time to time uh, interdict those containers at the at the port of entry at these other countries and, and then you know at some some expense bring them back to Canada. Okay, so what can we do? Like as car owners, obviously we don't want our cars to be stolen, but what can we do? So awareness is is critical. So just, you know, thank you for having me on 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 the the show as I'm able to sort of speak about this and and tell, you know, tell people it's, you know, the, the CRV as you identified it's it's, you know, it's not we're not talking Ferraris and Mercedes necessarily, though those are obviously a target. It's everyday cars. So you know, as I said at the top of the, the conversation, don't leave it running, your vehicle running unattended. If you've got a garage, we recommend that you don't leave it on the driveway. You put your vehicle in the garage. Take a look and see what are the top 10 most stolen vehicles and then take extra precautions for those vehicles. Think about putting, you know, something like a, a tracker could be, you know, something, you know, as innocuous as a one of those uh, Apple tags or, or tiles. You can put something like that where you can even get the third party, something a little bit more sophisticated, uh, even secondary ignitions, you know, those things do start, you know, ramp up in terms of cost. Really? And then, and then the last thing I would say is, if you do have a push button start, so you've got, you know, that means right. that your your key fob is sending a signal for the, you know, twenty, thirty, maybe forty bucks, uh, you know, and you, on Amazon or elsewhere, you can get these little things called a Faraday bag, and you know, at the end of the day, instead of just plopping your keys on the counter slip it into the bag and you, you right away make it much more difficult for them to do one of the relay attacks. And you, you're not going to make it theft proof, but you'll definitely make your car more difficult to steal so that they move on down the road. Oh, I am definitely going to look into that. Well, Michael, thank you so much for that. My pleasure. That's Michael Rota, President and CEO of the Canadian Finance and Leasing Association, talking about it really does sound like a bit of an epidemic when it comes to car thefts right across the country. The numbers are way, way up. And you want to know what else is stolen in this country? So number one was the Honda CRV, right? Uh, number two is the Lexus RX series. Three, the Ford F-150 series of pickup trucks. Four, the Honda Civic. Remember, the Honda Civic was number one on this list for a very long time. Number five, Toyota Highlander. Number six, the Ram 1500 series pickup trucks. Number seven, the Chevy GMC Silverado Sierra pickup trucks. Number eight, Honda Accord. Number nine, Jeep Grand Cherokee. Number 10, the Toyota RAV4. Those are the top 10 most stolen types of vehicles in Canada. And I am definitely going to look into some of those suggestions that Michael just made there. This is Mornings with Simi. It has been four years since Canada fully legalized cannabis sale and consumption, and we are still analyzing all of the different ways that this has had an impact. One of the ways that we analyze that is by taking a look at what's happening on our roads. Now, the Traffic Injury Research Foundation has just released a report on recreational cannabis consumption spaces in Canada and how that is impacting our driving. So joining us now to talk more about those results is Robin Robertson, President and CEO of the Traffic Injury Research Foundation. Robin, thanks for being here. Good morning, Simi. Happy to be here. Now, first of all, what did you examine here? 
Um, so our organization, which is a, a registered uh, charity and research institute, has studied uh, behavior on the road for a long time. So impaired driving as one of the biggest contributors to crashes is uh, certainly a key topic of interest for us. So we've been looking at trends in alcohol and drug impaired driving and particularly the legalization of cannabis and how that's affected uh, road safety in Canada for the for the past number of years. So generally what we're seeing is a, is a concerning upward trend when we're looking at fatal crashes uh, drivers testing positive for alcohol or drugs in fatal crashes, as well as self-reported um, uh, driving within two hours of consuming alcohol and cannabis. We're seeing increases in both those indicators, and, and that's concerning. Okay, so tell me about the stats then. What exactly? So you said people self-reported some of this information. What were you asking them? It's, so there's two uh, sources of information that we have. One, we collect data from medical examiners and coroners across the country to uh, look at the presence of alcohol and drugs in drivers killed in road crashes. Um, and what we're seeing there is is since 2018, we're seeing an increase in the uh, percent of drivers who are testing positive, um, certainly for cannabis. Um, and and that, that upward trend was happening before uh, legalization, but it's it's gone up since. So in 2018, uh, at the at the time of legalization, we saw about uh, 24% of drivers tested positive for for cannabis, um, and it's gone up to about 28% uh, of drivers killed in road crashes testing positive for cannabis. So that seems like small percentages, um, but it, but it's a large number of drivers. So, and what do you think that tells us then about like are we not taking this seriously enough? Uh, well, I think there's a couple of issues. I think. Um, the perceptions around alcohol and, and cannabis are different. Um, I think there's a, a mistaken perception that uh, cannabis is safer uh, than alcohol in terms of being the, the lesser of two evils. Um, and the perception that cannabis is safe is is not necessarily correct one. I think what Canadians do need to know is that alcohol and cannabis impair different types of skills. So there's there's some overlap in in that they impair the same way, but there's also some differences, and it's really important that they understand how those differences compare, particularly when they're combining. We're also seeing an increase in people combining cannabis and alcohol, and that's also concerning. So when we say, you know, don't drive impaired, is it that people are just thinking, oh, impaired, that's alcohol? Yep, that's that's part of it, and I think uh, people underestimate their impairment. We've we have a number of research studies that have been done uh, over the decades, which really demonstrate people aren't good at estimating. Certainly, with alcohol, they're not good at estimating how impaired they are, and alcohol uh, encourages. Well, it inhibits inhibits some of your uh, uh, your um, senses, so you're more inclined to take risks when you drink. So there's people aren't good at gauging how impaired they are when they're drinking, and then for cannabis, uh, they feel more relaxed, um, and and they tend not to be aware of uh, some of the the more subtle changes w- with respect to impairment. So things like uh, your situational awareness uh, is reduced, your reaction times are reduced. Um, you know, there can be paranoia or disorientation. There can be memory issues. So all of those things can negatively impact your driving and people just just may not be as attuned to them um, and and tend to feel that they're okay to drive and, and drive after they've been consuming. 
So then what do we need to do here? Do we need to retool the way we present these messages to the public then, Robin? Do we need to start saying, hey, hey, you got to think about not driving when you've had cannabis? Uh, right. So the safest choice is, is not to use cannabis or alcohol if you're going to drive. And that's why uh, certainly among younger people, you see the trend in the term sober driver. Um, so not consuming anything when you drive, because that is the safest choice. I think people also need to be aware that there are other things that can affect how impaired you are, such as fatigue, uh, for example. So uh, we know when you're more fatigued, you're a less safe driver simply because your reaction times are slower and, and you're not as attuned to the driving environment. So when you combine that with something like alcohol or cannabis, it can amplify your risk. So I think we need to do a better job helping Canadians understand, um, one, what those impairments are and, and how to recognize them uh, when they are using or, or drinking or, or consuming. And then we also need to uh, do a better job helping them understand that um, there are different factors that can contribute to your impairment and things like fatigue uh, can also play a role and amplify those effects. Do we, I guess, does law enforcement need help on this as well? Like, do we have the right mechanisms, the right measurements for determining the level of impairment if it is cannabis related as opposed to alcohol? Yeah, I think we do. Um, I just don't think we have enough of them. Um, and, and to give you a for instance, we know from the Canadian uh, Cannabis and Trauma Centre study that's being done at, you know, 15 trauma centres across Canada, we've seen more than 5,000 people uh, who come in as a result of, of road crashes uh, who are admitted with uh, some degree of injury. And, you know, um, a proportion of them are testing positive for cannabis. Uh, so it's harder to detect. Um, it's a different uh, type of impairment. Uh, we need more officers that are trained as drug recognition experts. Um, and then there are oral fluid uh, testing devices. Um, so I think enforcement is a key piece of it. The other interesting thing that happened is generally when legislation comes into effect, you see a decline in the behavior. There's a deterrent effect associated with the law. And we've seen that, for example, with distracted driving legislation, where the law comes into effect, you see a decline for a few years as that law is, is really more actively enforced. And then, uh, you know, it, it generally creeps back up, not quite as high, but it does creep back up. And when we pass the legislation, in 2018, we didn't see that decline in behavior. We didn't see it in self-report and we didn't see it in uh, fatal crashes. So that means we need to do a better job um, right. making people aware of the law, but also enforcing the law. And there's a, a misperception among drivers that um, they won't be caught or that they can't be detected. And the reality is officers do have the tools to detect uh, drug impairment. Is this a bit of a wake-up call then for all these drivers, for all of us out there? I think it is. Uh, we really need to do a much better job, and that's why things like uh, conversations around cannabis consumption spaces and jurisdictions considering uh, moving forward to permit cannabis consumption spaces are so concerning is because we do see a problem with cannabis and driving. We do see it in fatal crashes. We do see it in self-report. We do see it in trauma centers. So for that reason, I think we need to think very carefully about what implications that will have um, uh, permitting cannabis consumption spaces. All right, Robin, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. 
Thanks very much, Simi. It's an important issue. I'm glad to talk to you. That's Robin Robertson, President and CEO of the Traffic Injury Research Foundation. They have been doing research into the impact of legalization of cannabis in Canada. It's been, what, since 2019? October, actually. We're coming up on the exact uh, four-year anniversary of that and really what it's doing to the way we drive and operate vehicles. And yeah, they are seeing, we are seeing more people driving statistically impaired on the roads. And I think it's true that when you say oh, impaired driver, people still automatically think alcohol impairment, not necessarily drug impairment. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Vancouver Whitecaps and Coach Vanny Sartini is with us now. Good morning, Coach. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I am excellent. Thank you. Sounds to me like a team had a couple of good weeks. You won the Cascadia Cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had, we had a very good week uh, on the road uh, uh, making seven points in three games, so two wins and, and one tie. And then at the same time, uh, Seattle and Portland, that are that our rivals in the, in the Cascadia Cup, they played together and uh, and they tied. So the Cascadia Cup basically is being awarded on the team between us, Seattle and Portland, who make more points when we play against each other, so no one can reach us because we had better result against them during the season. So we got this trophy too that is uh, not an official one but it's very important for the fans it's actually the fans who hold the, the trophy and uh, the fans our fans they had the the i would say the pleasure to go to seattle and receive from seattle fans because they won last yes. year the trophy so that's yes. uh, a bragging right in the pacific northwest so <laughs> we're happy we're very happy because it was the uh, last last time that we won was 2016 so it was quite wow. quite a time so yeah, you get it, another, though. You understand another, the fans. Another, another thing that say that uh, we're, we're having a good season. Yeah, you so are having have. a good season. Knock wood. Uh, you get the fans, though. You know how important something like Cascadia Cup is to the fans up here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's, about, uh, it's all about uh, bragging rights, uh, rivalries. It's the, I would, say, I would say it's the salt and pepper of, uh, of any sports. And, it is. And soccer in particular. So, you know, when, when you... But when the fans are happy, we are happy too. Okay, so things are looking, you know, pretty good right now. Vancouver sitting in sixth spot there. You've got a pretty condensed schedule coming up. You're not playing this week, but pretty condensed schedule ahead. Yeah, uh, so we we have a, a bye week. This week we were not playing, so I would say it's okay. We can train. We could stay here in. Uh, we can stay here in Vancouver because then uh, from next Saturday when we'll go to Toronto, we we're gonna have five games in. Uh, in 15 days so it's going to be wow. really hard and in the middle of that uh, there's travel to uh, Toronto then Houston Salt Lake Colorado so it's going to be it's going to be quite uh, quite a busy quite a busy couple of weeks so uh, as usual we will we'll go all in and of course uh, the only the, the only the real upside is I have a lot of places where I can try my pizza so that's the thing have you, have you had something <laughs> this season coach where you're like oh I can't wait to get back to that city to go to that pizza place I discovered a good one in um, when we played in um, uh, in Los Angeles that uh, you know there was a one place close to the hotel where we stay in and uh, I really liked it. That's the reason why 
when we played the other team in Los Angeles, uh, usually we had to go to a different hotel, but I asked to go to the same hotel so I could go to the same pizza place. <laughs> you know what? When this season is over, we're going to do a segment and talk about all of your favorite pizza places because I want to know the names of these places, okay? Okay. okay all right. Sounds okay. good. Good luck. Enjoy your week. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. I love this next question that we are asking people because ever since our contributor Scott Chance posed this question yesterday, I've been thinking about it. And the question is, could you spend an entire year without the internet? And he spoke with someone yesterday who actually did do that. But it has become so difficult for us to even go a day without the internet, right? You probably can't even go at this point an hour. You ask a question, you expect an immediate answer and you expect the internet to give it to you. But how does that impact our mental health, knowing that that is always there, that's always on, you're always reachable? What does that do to us and our mental health? So as I mentioned, our show contributor, Scott Chance, has been looking into this. And he did recently speak with professor and author Aaron Rosenberg, who did spend that entire year offline. So we heard part one of Scott's interview with Aaron. And now we're going to talk a little bit more with Aaron Rosenberg. But this part is all about where Scott asks Aaron about how this year offline affected his mental health. Uh, Aaron Rosenberg, the name of his book is Jacking Out, a journal of a year spent offline. It came out in July. Let me ask you about this, because I think this is something that people bring up with phones and social media and our connectivity so much. How did your mental health change over the year? That's a really good question. I think my mental health was probably the strongest it's been, which for a lot of people, when you hear 2020, a lot of my contemporaries and friends and family, I think had really uh, a lot of struggles that year with the isolation and with that type of uh, feeling like they weren't able to do the types of things they were used to doing. And so I feel a little bit bad when I tell people that that experience for me was quite different. Instead of having the kind of doom scrolly sitting alone and reading all sorts of bad news or conspiracy theories on my phone, I was stuck to just engage with the books I already had on hand. And I found that my life pace really slowed down. And I know I think that's true for everyone during lockdowns, our, our life pace slowed down. But I think that because I couldn't access the internet to read all sorts of um, theories about what was happening and what was going to happen, I had a bit more of a uh, grounded headspace. And I was getting my news mostly from the radio. And so on the radio, they don't really, uh, they don't really present a lot of the more sensational doomy kind of news that I think was quite common on social media during that time. Mm-hmm. And so I really had a quite a, a calm and uh, healthy year, I think. But I want to point out that it's not sustainable. I think because I was a grad student and had made arrangements with my team and with my supervisors to do this experience, I was able to make it work. But for most jobs, for most people, it's not possible to say, I'm just going to not check my email for the next year. Right. So I feel like it's... Um, a bit ironic, but from spending this year offline from such a drastic move, I've come to realize that the more uh, realistic, sustainable, and helpful uh, things that people can do are actually much more moderate. Things like trying to spend an evening a week where you don't use your device or going for a weekend away where you decide not to bring your laptop with you. I think those smaller changes, they're actually a little bit more difficult because they take a lot more self-control but they're more sustainable and realistic. Yeah, and it sounds like you are, are sort of sticking to some of that. Like you mentioned that even now you still don't have, like you, you give yourself permission to use the internet as is necessary now, but you still don't have a smartphone. Yeah, so I think uh, I thought by spending a year offline, 
I would end up having a lot more self-control and ability to regulate my my uh, digital experiences. Like I would have more self-control and ability to stop using my phone at night when I didn't want to use it anymore. But it actually, when I got back online in January 2021, I realized that I was sitting on my laptop scrolling Twitter for hours. And I found that it takes practice to have that kind of self-control to be able to moderate our digital use. And by spending a year offline, I actually had lost all practice. So when I got back online, I struggled to get into some of those healthy digital habits that I now as an educator try to promote to my students. But I think that I did take away a few things that suck. For example, I still have a flip phone. And I feel like having that hard boundary where I'm just not able to scroll the internet on my phone really restricts me from being able to do some of those compulsive digital practices that my friends and family sometimes complain about. Wow. Okay. This is really, really brilliant. So what do you say to people who ask you about the experience now? If someone were to say to you, hey, I'd like to do something as well. I recognize that I have some addictions and, you know, I feel like too attached to my phone. What, what would your response be to something like that? My big message to people who want to think more deeply and more critically about their digital experiences is to spend a bit of time offline. I don't advocate that people copy my experience and try to spend a year offline because I don't think it actually allows them to engage in society in ways that might support the kinds of social or environmental justice uh, improvements that my year offline was targeting. So my advice to people is to learn more about their digital practices, learn about where does the energy and resources and uh, all the different materials that make up your phone or your device, where do those come from? When you store files on a cloud, the cloud isn't just floating in the sky like the metaphor might suggest. It's actually a big warehouse somewhere. So look into where are your files being stored and try to think about what are the practices that you can do every day that might challenge some of the negative impacts of our digital practices. I don't think that um, most people in our society would actually benefit from spending a year offline. I think it's much more powerful to try to find small ways to moderate your tech use. Things like spending a bit of time offline every day or when you have that compulsive feeling like, oh, I need to look something up on your phone. Instead, try to ask some people around you what they might think or trying to engage other uh, possibilities like looking up things in the dictionary instead of quickly doing a, a search on your phone. Because I think we've, we've just normalized the way that the digital practices we do are just sort of around and we can do them without having consequences. But everything we do online does have a a material consequence in the non-virtual world. So interesting. That's Aaron Rosenberg. Aaron is a lecturer in the Department of Integrated Studies and Education at McGill University and the author of Jacking Out, a journal of a year spent offline. Could you do it? Like, okay, not the year. The year seems very extreme to spend offline. But a day, a week, a month, and we're talking... Completely offline. I think the only thing that Aaron told us that he uses his the internet for, actually, no, he didn't use the internet at all. He used his cell phone so he could talk to people on the phone and he could text message people because that used a different system than the internet. And that was it. Could you go without the internet? I know it feels like the world conspires against us in that, there, how could you? What about boarding passes? What about traveling? What about everything is online and available on the internet these days? But could you still do it, do you think? And how long do you think you would last without the internet? And would you be happier? That is the question. Sometimes without the idea of, oh, I got to check Facebook. Oh, I got to scroll and see what people are posting. Oh, I got to... 
maybe if that burden were gone and you didn't worry about all of that, maybe we would be a little bit happier, feel less anxiety, less anxiousness about, am I missing something? Is everything else, is everybody else enjoying something or doing something that I don't know about? 